0: Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at EmpowerMissouri.org
1: WOA.
2: This is the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. From St. Louis Public Radio, I'm Jason Rosenbaum. Later in the hour, we'll talk with leaders of a ballot item to legalize abortion in Missouri, and while they'll have a tight timeframe to gather more than 171,000 signatures by May, we'll also discuss the inadequacies of civic education in Missouri and around the country with St. Louis on the Air host Elaine Cha. But first, Missourians will participate in a much different type of election to choose presidential delegates this year. That's because, a couple of years ago, the Missouri General Assembly ditched the state-run presidential primary and instead are entrusting the process to divvy up delegates to national conventions to the Missouri Republican and Democratic parties. This is one instance where Missouri Republicans and Democrats are united in their irritation. They would much rather have local election officials help conduct primaries, but efforts to bring the state-run primaries faltered in 2023. And Missouri's political parties are trying to inform the public about what's to come in the March contests. Joining us now from Kansas City is Matthew Patterson, the executive director of the Missouri Democratic Party. And joining us in studio is Chris Gron Howard, a longtime Republican activist from St. Louis County who helped design the GOP caucus that will take place on March 2nd. Matthew, Chris, welcome to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Privileged. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. One of the key takeaways we've gotten from listeners is they are not happy that the parties are responsible for running the presidential delegate selection process as opposed to local election officials like county clerks are, you know, the St. Louis County Board of Elections. Uh, Chris, would you say that Republicans writ large are also displeased with the situation?
3: Yes, I have traveled over 1,800 miles around the state. You'd think I was running for statewide office training uh, Republican county chairs across the, the state on how to conduct an Iowa-style caucus, and I hear the same complaint everywhere I go, Chris, why do we not have a presidential preference primary? Um, As I pointed out once before, you know, Russ Carnahan, who's the chair of the Missouri Democrat Party, Nick Myers, who's the chair of the Missouri Republican Party, who are almost by rule not allowed to agree on anything, went to Jefferson City, told the legislature, give us this back, and they didn't get it done, and people are not happy about it.
2: Matthew, what does your party think about the situation it's in where you're responsible for organizing and executing uh, these presidential delegate selection process?
4: Yeah, as much like Chris, you know, uh, you don't find agreement on too many things. Uh, You see your chairs agreeing, uh, our state state party chairs agreeing on much, but um, this we can agree with that this is not the ideal situation, but I feel like we've, you know, jumped in and you know, set up a process that I think we'll try to, you know, we're trying to be as inclusive as possible on our side and trying to, you know, make it open and, you know, try to communicate what we're, what we're wanting to do. And, and I think that's been, you know, pretty successful here at the beginning. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of, you know, folks who are not, you know, not pleased, saying why, you know, why are we doing this? And, you know, so it's an educational process also.
2: So one of the big proponents of getting rid of the state primary was Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, who told me this earlier this year.
1: If we're going to have an election, the election needs to be the one that actually determines those delegates. And we need to make sure that every election we hold in Missouri, the people of Missouri, their votes count. Um, So, yeah, for several years, probably from like 17 to around 20 Um, I kind of pushed and said, look, we shouldn't have both of these. Let's get rid of the primary and um, save the $10 million. Then I started looking at other states' caucuses, and I have never seen a state that has a good process for making sure that our best and brightest young men and women that Uncle Sam sends around the world um, are allowed to participate in a caucus. And I said, well, that's a real problem. If we're creating a system where they can't decide. Uh, So the last couple of years, I've tried to work with the legislature to turn the primary election into an election where the people's votes determine the delegates and the parties can't change that after the fact.
2: That was Missouri Secretary of State. Jay Ashcroft, who also said legislative efforts to reinstate the state-run primary with guarantees the results would determine delegate allocation faltered in 2023. Chris, I think you were about to jump in to respond to Secretary Ashcroft's comment. Yeah, so listen,
3: it it pains me to do this, but his statement is problematic on a couple fronts. And as you and I talked privately, um, legislators of both parties sometimes tend to forget that if it's not in statute, that there's there's other ways to do it. If it's not in statute, it doesn't exist to them. And so that's the hole that Jay has put himself in here. The Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Green Party, they are private entities by law, and they can create the rules to determine how their delegates are allocated. And and please remember, for the Republicans, I don't know what the number is for the Democrats, but the race of president is 270. You get 270 delegates. So it's not about votes. It's about delegates, Right. So in 2016, the Missouri Republican Party changed their rules to uh, provide guidance on how our national delegates should be allocated based upon the outcome of the presidential preference primary. And I know that because I helped write those rules. Uh, And so Jay seems to have forgotten that those private rules existed. And I don't know what the Democrats' rules are, but I know they have rules.
2: Uh, Matthew, I want you to also chime in here to respond to Secretary of ashcroft's comment
4: yeah it's very disappointing that he's made these comments because like chris said you know we are are the results from the primaries have have been tied to how we allocate our delegates you know he called i think he called this like a beauty contest and it's like it's the farthest thing from you know a beauty contest this is actually what we use to determine you know the delegate allocation so i don't understand you know and then he also goes to talk about the military voters And what he's done is actually excluded the military voters, um, you know, especially on the Republican caucus. You know, they're not here in person. Uh, They can't participate.
2: So let's walk through how these contests are going to work. And let's, let's start with the Democratic side, because I think it's a lot more straightforward. Matthew, from the outside looking in, it seems that the process is very similar to a primary Tell us how Missouri Democrats or or anybody who is eligible to participate in this can get involved.
4: Sure. Yeah, we've got we've kind of taken a two prong approach to this. Uh, the first part of it is um, you can request a ballot. Uh, you can go to MissouriDems.org, dot org, and you can request a ballot uh, be mailed to you uh, between now and March the twelfth. Um, and then as long as you get that back to us by. March 23rd at 10 o'clock. If you get that mailed back to us, uh, that will go. You know that will count uh, for your ballot. Uh, you do not have to be a registered Democrat. Uh, you can be an unaffiliated voter. You can be a Democrat-affiliated voter, um, and and you'll be allowed to you know vote in in into in our primary. Um, and then on March 23rd, uh, we have an in-person. What we're lo- looking to do is have an in-person event in each county. Uh, Jackson County and um, St. Louis County, St. Louis City will have multiple places just because there's larger population there uh, for people to, you know, come in and to vote the ballot that way too. If they have not requested or if they didn't get their ballot mailed in time, that'll be an opportunity for them to drop those ballots off or to, you know, vote in person. Um, And, you know, in, in terms of You know, we felt like that was the best way to get, you know, as many people involved as possible. Uh, We're also sending out, you know, part of that bill that they passed allowed, you know, people to register as party uh, starting last year. Um, I think in the last uh, update that we got, there were over 27,600 registered Democrats. We will mail them automatically a ballot ballot. for them uh, about the middle of the month, around February 21st is going to be our first mailing on those, along with the folks who have requested a ballot up to that point.
2: When I was talking with Missouri Democratic Party Chairman Russ Carnahan a few months ago, he noted that this was going to be a very costly process, primarily because getting a vendor to mail out ballots and tabulate the votes is not free. So how much is this going to cost your party and how is your party going to pay for all this to make sure it actually works effectively
4: and we're looking at the cost is going to be probably between 150 to 200 thousand dollars. Uh, we we're working uh, like i said with a vendor um, i will say the Democratic national committee has uh has pledged and actually has been sending us money for that um, it's not going to cover the whole cost and but it's a partnership with them uh, that we're working you know to raise the money on our side but they've also uh, chipped in a significant portion of it also.
2: And how will votes for this contest be tabulated, and when will people find out who won?
4: Yeah. So what we'll do on March 23rd, when we have the in-person event, um, uh, those ballots will be you know, brought uh, to, to a place uh, that we're working out of in St. Louis with our vendor. And uh, the mail ballots will be sent to P.O. Box in St. Louis that our vendor will collect, uh, they'll take those ballots to a safe and secure location, uh, room that is locked. Uh, and those ballots will be put into a, uh, into uh, what I call like a case, you know, where they'll store the ballots. And those ballots will be stored uh, in there until March 23rd. They will not be opened. They will not be sorted or anything till March 23rd. Uh, there will be a camera on them 24-7 to make sure that no one, you know, tampers or, you know, tries to get in there. Um, and then, uh, we will start that process of counting ballots, uh, using, uh, the machines from the vendors to do that, to do those ballot counts. Um, and as we receive, you know, we'll start with the mail ballots first, and then we will receive, uh, you know, throughout the afternoon into the evening in St. Louis, we'll be receiving ballots, you know, from the counties across the state. Uh, so the, the counting will probably also go into Sunday and we'll be doing, you know, the County votes on Sunday, and then those that information will be released on March 25th on how the outcome came and um, you know how many votes were cast and all that information.
2: We are talking with Missouri Democratic Party Executive Director Matthew Patterson and longtime St. Louis County Republican activist Chris Gran Howard about March's presidential delegate selection processes. Now, Chris. Um, To put it mildly, the Republican process is a lot different. You you mentioned it's similar to an Mm Iowa-style caucus. Correct. What is an Iowa-style caucus, and how will it work on March 2nd?
3: So March 2nd, 10 o'clock, all 114 counties in the city of St. Louis will convene uh, their local caucuses as they have set up, but they're at the same time, uh, same date for everyone. Uh, You will come in, and then there will be uh, actually a, a nomination for president of the United States. And so someone will say, I nominate Donald J. Trump. I nominate Nikki Haley. I don't know if there's anyone else left uh, at this point. And so then you will – it's pure democracy. They're going to vote with their feet. They're literally going to get up and go to opposite sides of the room, and they're going to they are going to do that. And then the, what they're going to do essentially is elect delegates to represent them at the, the Congressional District Convention and the State Convention, which is where national delegates are awarded. National delegates are awarded um, – Three delegates and three alternates at each congressional district convention around the state, which will be on April 6th. And then the remaining at-large delegates will be selected at the Missouri Republican State Convention, which will be May the 4th. And you all can pray for me because that's my wife's birthday and I'm already in trouble.
2: I, I will pray for you. <laughs> but how long should people expect to be at these caucuses?
3: Uh, I expect it will take no less than three hours.
2: OK. Uh, and
3: Because there's two parts to it. So the first part is the delegate uh election. And then Missouri Republicans will have an opportunity to uh, review and then uh, make amendments to the Missouri Republican Party platform. So every Missouri Republican who shows up will have an input on the Missouri Republican Party platform.
2: So we got a lot of questions primarily from Reddick, including one from Pedanic Dullard, who asks, I want a Republican to specifically answer the question if the caucus by design attracts lower numbers of voters because the participants must remain until the vote is counted why was that preferred over a ballot primary where i can do my duty in five minutes and not three to five hours
3: so remember most of us in the republican state committee lobbied lots of legislators for the presidential preference primary Uh, We didn't get that. Why we didn't do what my uh, friend on the other end of the line here, the Democrats, are doing is because we didn't have the money to do it, and I think it's going to cost them a lot more than a couple hundred thousand dollars. But God bless them if they can do it for that price. So we didn't think we could execute that with the cost. And so then we were left with a caucus. We've done caucuses before in 2012 and 1996, and so we just built a process that was we felt was cleaner and more efficient than those years. And what we want the presidential preference primary.
2: And I guess this is a question for both of you: um, Can military personnel participate this in this at all? It seems the answer is no for a, the caucus. On our side,
3: unfortunately, no. The legislature essentially disenfranchised every person who's serving in our military. What they about? Can't- yeah, they can't participate.
2: Matthew, what about for this uh, Democratic selection process? I know
4: they can, know they can request one. I, you know, the the quickness of getting that to them and getting it back is going to be is you know is going to be the challenge on that. Uh, but so, we feel like you know we'll send them out early enough that they'll receive, and that they can get them back to us in a timely you know enough time.
2: So, so Matthew mentioned that that registered Democrats and unaffiliated vote, voters mm-hmm. can participate in the Democratic process. Do you have to be a registered Republican to participate? So, j-
3: Just to clarify, we don't yet have registered parties in Missouri. It's a, it's a voluntary affiliation. So what we're talking about is affiliated Democrats or affiliated Republicans. We felt, um, much like the whole fact that people don't even realize we're not having a presidential preference primary that uh, to require the affiliation would be another hurdle for some people who weren't even aware that they should do it so that is not a requirement to participate in the process
2: at any level so for example if i haven't checked off republican democrat libertarian i can come to the republican caucus and participate yes okay so happy humorist on Reddit writes, how are the parties expecting their preferred system to scale? Like this election cycle for president is pretty one-sided for each party, given it's the first time the systems have been changed. I don't expect a high turnout, but in 2028 when turnout much might be much higher, will their preferred systems be able to handle it? And I think that that is basically saying the elephant in the room right now, president Joe Biden is expected to be the Democratic nominee. Donald Trump is expected to be the Republican nominee. But could this be sustainable when there's open races for both in 2028? I'll start with you, Matthew.
4: You not believe it is sustainable just because, I mean, you're going to see a level of enthusiasm uh, much higher for both sides and greater turnout. And I don't think that's something that we want to see. I think that's why exactly why we need the return to the a uh, state run presidential primary.
2: Chris, do you think that, a, that do you think that in
4: 2028
2: when it's going to be an open race for president on both sides that 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 if they don't make if the legislature doesn't go back to a state run primary there's going to be some real logistical problems.
3: Absolutely. I agree with what Matthew said. Listen, we want a presidential preference primary. Listen, I was the chief architect for the system. I'm proud of it. I hope we never have to use it again.
2: Do you expect that how these processes go could determine whether legislators end up acting in 2025, for example, to, to revert back to a state primary?
3: So it, for the Republicans, I can tell you that a lot of legislators have felt uncomfortable as they've attended some of these trainings. And I have pointed out their what I consider a failure uh, of the legislature. Uh, and so I think a lot of people who voted... To eliminate the presidential preference primary. If they knew what they knew now, they would have voted different. And I think they will vote to reinstate it.
2: Matthew, do you think that whatever happens in the next few weeks with the Democratic and Republican presidential selection process could be determinative about whether the legislature goes back to a state-run primary where local election officials are in charge of organizing it?
4: No, I don't know if it's about what happens, you know, whether it's our you know, with our presidential primary or with the Republican caucus. But I think there's just the expectation that these are, uh, that these events would be state-run, that these elections would be state-run. And I think they're just the folks being, you know, have, you know, finally realized that this is happening and that they're seeing this. I think just the outcry from Democrats and Republicans and and unaffiliated voters that legislators will do the right thing and restore the funding. I think that's something that the you know that hopefully they see that that's one of the first things they should do in 2025. I don't know if it is or not, but uh, but I would hopefully that you know because of public out you know outcry, and I hope there's nothing that happens that you know makes you know that you know something bad happens in terms on the Republican side or on the Democrat side that you know looks like a disaster or whatever or whatnot, but. Um, I would just hope the outcry from voters is enough to make that change.
2: Matthew Patterson is the executive director of the Missouri Democratic Party, and Chris Gron Howard is a longtime Republican Party activist from St. Louis County. Chris, Matthew, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you, Jason. Appreciate it.
2: Coming up next, we'll talk with leaders of an effort to make abortion legal in Missouri. This is the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Welcome back to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jason Rosenbaum.
5: Okay, I signed. All right, thank you.
2: (laughs) Earlier this week at the pageant in St. Louis, supporters of a bid to repeal Missouri's abortion ban kicked off their initiative petition campaign. They're seeking to place an amendment in the state's constitution that would allow the procedure up to what's known as fetal viability. That's defined in the amendment as the point in a pregnancy where healthcare professionals determine there's a significant likelihood a fetus would survive outside of the womb without extraordinary medical measures. Backers of Missourians for Constitutional Freedoms Amendment need tens of thousands of signatures by early May for their measure to go before voters later this year. But they've expressed cautious optimism thanks to people like Enola Proctor, who signed on to the petition at this past Tuesday's event.
5: It would return health care to women and their doctors uh, where it fundamentally belongs.
2: But in addition to convincing a diverse cross-section of the state to sign on to the measure, backers of Missourians for Constitutional Freedom's plan will also have to deal with organized opposition. Joining me in studio today is Mallory Schwartz with Missourians for Constitutional Freedom, Mallory is also the executive director of Abortion Action Missouri. Mallory, welcome.
6: Thanks so much for having me.
2: So this amendment would place into the Missouri Constitution um, language allowing abortion up to what's known as fetal viability. Can you kind of explain what that means?
6: Yes. Uh, this Fundamentally, what this amendment would do is end Missouri's cruel abortion ban Right now, every week, Missourians are being denied abortions and forced to continue even life-threatening pregnancies against their will, risking their health and lives as a result. What this amendment would do is put the decision-making around this personal health care decision back in the hands of a patient with the consultation and support of their provider.
2: Why There were a number of potential... Uh, initiative petitions that your group had at least uh, submitted to the Secretary of State, why did you decide to go with fetal viability instead of like 24 weeks or no gestational limit at all?
6: There was a lot of research that went into this process over the past year, nearly a year since those petitions were first filed. And we also saw over the year, the constant attacks of our state trying to undermine and slow down this process. And so what it came down to in the end is we have a petition in front of us that the majority of Missourians support and that will end our state's abortion ban.
2: So the decision that ended up overturning Roe versus Wade created a lot of ambiguity for patients and doctors. Melissa Farmer was 17 weeks pregnant when her water broke. When she arrived at a hospital in Joplin, she got the hardest news a parent could receive She had a rupture, and it meant that her child could not survive, and it could put a farmer's life in danger. But instead of performing an emergency delivery, the doctors turned her away because under Missouri law, this was an abortion.
3: They informed me that our daughter was no longer going to survive and that my life was in danger, and normally they would be able to intervene, but because Missouri law was not clear they recommended that I leave the state to get care.
2: That was Melissa Farmer, who spoke to St. Louis on the Air last year. Farmer did eventually get an abortion, but she had to go to Illinois. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I want to get a sense of how this amendment would affect people like Farmer.
6: Yeah, Melissa is sadly one example of many Missourians who are facing similar challenges and fearing for their own health and lives. Right now, pregnant Missourians have no options. Even people like Melissa with planned and wanted pregnancies are scared to be pregnant because they know if they face an unexpected complication, there are no options available to them in their own communities with providers that they trust. Their only option, as Melissa faces, is to flee their state. This amendment will ensure that patients facing the most dire circumstances can feel safe, knowing that their provider has the discretion and ability to provide the care that they need.
2: So just to be clear, though, if this ends up passing, it wouldn't make the abortion ban vanish immediately. There would have to be, like, lawsuits to bring it down as well as a lot of other abortion restrictions. Is that a fair assessment?
6: Because this is a change to Missouri's Constitution, what it would do is make a slew of existing restrictions and regulations and attacks on abortion unconstitutional there would be legal action required, but it it changes the, the very basis for the laws that exist today.
2: So Mallory, Missourians for Constitutional Freedom, the campaign has raised nearly $3 million in just large donations of $5,000 or more uh, in just a few weeks. And it's also attracted thousands of volunteer petition gatherers. What do you think this means for the future immediate future, especially, of your campaign?
6: What it means for the immediate future is that there are people across our state who already have committed to taking action and are actively mobilizing into this campaign. As you mentioned, the campaign has raised more than $3 million in just two weeks. There are more than 5,000, probably six today, who have signed up to collect signatures and take action. We have a limited time to do that, but we have the people and resources needed to make it possible.
2: I'm glad you mentioned volunteers because also in the studio today is Lisa Williams, a longtime volunteer, an organizing fellow with Abortion Action Missouri, and she's one of thousands of Missourians who signed up to gather signatures. Lisa, welcome to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Thank you, Jason. What prompted you to get involved in this campaign?
0: Well, when the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade, I was so angry, and I knew that I needed to do something to channel that anger, and so I started volunteering with Abortion Action because I believed that that was the best way that we were going to get the law changed.
2: Have you ever gathered signatures for anything before?
0: Yes, I have. In fact, I've been gathering signatures for about 12 years now. Um, First campaign I worked on was in 2012, and I've worked on a number of them since then.
2: I think this is a lot different from other initiative petitions we've seen because a lot of those campaigns usually involve people who are paid. But the fact that there are so many volunteers for this um, has really caught a lot of people... I wouldn't say it's caught a lot of people off guard, but it's certainly gotten a lot of people's attention. What do you think that means that there are so many people willing to get signatures for this?
0: Well, yes, the response has been kind of overwhelming, really. I believe that in 2018, um, when they had the referendum to fight the right to work, there were thousands of volunteers who volunteered at that time to collect signatures and set a record for it. But in just the first couple weeks, we have already surpassed that record. And so I believe that the reason is because Missourians don't agree with this ban and they want to take the matter into their own hands because the politicians have not listened to their will. And so they are taking it into their own hands to make it into law.
2: So how intensive is the the training to gather these signatures, especially if they're first-time people? Like, there is probably a lot of education that has to go to people that are asking for these signatures. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Right. Well, I mean, it's a legal process. So we want to make sure that every signature that we get counts. So we want to make sure that it's valid. And to do that, we do have to train the volunteers to understand the process and make sure that they are um, collecting to get valid signatures.
2: And, and Mallory, for people that have never signed an initial petition before, what does somebody have to actually put on a, on a petition for their signature to be valid?
6: Yes, great question. To sign a petition in Missouri, you must be a registered Missouri voter, And it's great for people to go check now and know what congressional district you're in and what county you live in, because that's examples of the information that are on each petition page. You will sign your name, you will share your address. That address must match your registered voter file address. And uh, then the volunteers collecting will help you you do the rest of it.
2: Now, oftentimes when reporters like myself Talk about ballot initiatives like this. We say you need more than one hundred seventy-one thousand signatures, but it's a it's a lot more complex than that. You have to actually get a certain amount of signatures in six of the eight congressional districts. Explain what that process is and how it affects your ability to get on the ballot.
6: Yes. So in order to get on the ballot for a constitutional change to the amendment, the number of signatures collected must be. 8% 8% of the voters in the last gubernatorial election and must be collected in six of eight congressional districts. So that math can break down in a, in a couple of different ways. But the, the final number, you are correct. It's over 172,000 signatures. And we have until May fifth to get it done.
2: Now, because it's six of eight, and you can't just get all of your signatures in heavily Democratic congressional districts. Your campaign is going to go into some places with people that vote for Republican candidates and maybe Republican candidates that voted for this abortion ban. How does that make your effort to get the amount of signatures you need in the geographic reach that you need to, to get in a really short time frame?
6: You know, I think the outpouring of support that we've seen has come from all corners of the state. And there is room in this campaign for every Missourian, no matter where they live. We had hundreds of people show up this past week on the Tuesday kickoff events in Springfield, in Columbia, in St. Joseph, um, as well as the urban centers of Kansas City and St. Louis. There is support for this that is nonpartisan, that is across people of every background and faith background and belief system. And there is room in this campaign for all of them.
2: We are talking with Mallory Schwartz and Lisa Williams, who are trying to get Missourians for Constitutional Freedoms ballot initiative on the 2024 ballot. Now, now Lisa, I I actually met you at the pageant. And what was kind of the reaction of people that came up to you and um, I assume wanted to sign the petition? I don't think that they would be going to the pageant if they weren't interested in doing it.
0: Right, yeah. They were there to be among the first in the state to sign, and people were so excited. I was just, like I said, kind of overwhelmed by the response that we got and the energy that was in the room that evening was amazing.
2: Um, do, you, do you kind of have a sense of, like, if there's going to be other events? And this could be a question for both of you, that people could come and, and sign similarly to what happened earlier this week?
6: Yeah. For folks who want to get involved and come and sign their petition or sign up to be signature gatherers, the best way to find that information is at moconstitutionalfreedom.org on our events page. um, You can see all upcoming events. I will say right now there are more than a dozen trainings set for the next 10 days, and they are all full, which I think shows the volume of response. But folks can sign up and take the pledge on the page to be the first to hear about the next posted trainings.
2: And could... People expect to see signature gatherers in like grocery stores or in front of libraries or in front of push Stadium. Like if they can't make an event, would, would there be expectation that they'll just see them around in public?
5: Absolutely.
6: There have been teams uh, out across the state all week long. So if you see someone in the parking lot of your Walmart or in front of your local library, stop and engage with them and they will help you sign? So,
2: Mallory, we've been talking for a number of months, and getting to this point has not been particularly easy. You mentioned the fact that the ballot summary had been under litigation, and there was this time-consuming fight between the state auditor and the attorney general over the fiscal note. One of the other complications was there was another initiative that made more modest alterations to Missouri's abortion ban. But on Thursday— Jamie Corley, the executive director of the Missouri Women and Family Research Fund, said she was suspending the campaign for the measure that would have legalized abortion up to 12 weeks of pregnancy and created a slew of exceptions to the ban.
6: We had to make a decision about whether we want to continue pushing this forward, getting to the ballot. You know, having two amendments on the ballot would pretty much guarantee both of them fail. Um, and we genuinely don't want to see that, you know, despite some, (laughs) uh, you know, people claiming I'm, you know, a Republican plant or an anti-abortion plant, um, that, that has never been our intention. So that's why we're pulling the amendment.
2: That was Jamie Corley of the Missouri Women and Family Research Fund. Um, as she alluded to, she is a longtime Republican operative that wanted to chip away at Missouri's abortion ban. Uh, Mallory, what's your reaction to this development?
6: I think we are really excited to see the growing momentum and growing coalition supporting Missourians for constitutional freedom. And we are proud to work with Missourians who, with any Missourian who is ready to fight back and end Missouri's ban. And I think uh Jamie's comment and role shows what what we've long known, which is this is not a partisan issue. Missourians across the state oppose this ban.
2: and I imagine that there is a sense of relief that there's not a competing initiative because not only could voters be confused when they're getting signatures, but and and this is a little in the weeds, but it's really important for your initiative. If both made the ballot, it could have created a lot of, complications, because if there's two ballot initiatives of the same subject, the one with more votes wins. So that's a long way of asking, you're probably relieved you don't have competition. Is that fair to say?
6: Yeah, I'm really excited to see people come together to support this one effort. And it's hard enough work to get one measure on the ballot. And it's going to take all of us in that one tent.
2: There is current opposition to what you're trying to do, Um, not only are there a number of people that oppose abortion rights who are telling people, you know, vote this down, Missouri Right to Life actually has a tip line in their decline to sign campaign. And so I want to make a caveat that Missouri Right to Life has the right to free speech as much as anybody else. But is there any thought process about this particular strategy as you all are gathering signatures.
6: You know, the beauty of the initiative petition process is that it's a very clear example of our democracy. Missourians go out and they talk to their neighbors and ask for support just to have the opportunity to vote on this policy. The Coalition for Life effort is undermining our democracy. And the fact that they are collecting these tips and urging neighbors to call call on call on their neighbors call out their neighbors shows that they know that the majority of Missourians are not on their side and that this is a tactic they're left to resort to
2: And if those complications weren't enough the other curvature of this entire debate is that Between now and May, it's possible lawmakers will try to place something on the ballot that makes the Constitution more difficult to amend. And some Republicans, like State Senator Rick Bratton of Harrisonville, who happens to be the chairman of the Missouri Freedom Caucus, have not been subtle about wanting to use initiative petition reform, which is what proponents call uh, what I just mentioned, to block any abortion legalization measure.
1: We played nice. We did that, and all we did was get knives in our backs the entire session. You know, and so uh, you know, at, at this point where there's so much at stake, gloves are off, and and we're willing to do whatever it takes to protect life and and to ensure that our constitution is is protected. That's what we swear an oath to protect and defend.
2: That was Rick Bratton, a Republican from Harrisonville, talking about how he wants to use what he calls initiative petition reform, to try and stymie any effort to legalize abortion in the state. Uh, Mallory, how big of a threat are proposals like these to what you're trying to do later in the year?
6: Politicians in Jefferson City have been obsessed with dismantling majority rule and the initiative petition process for years now, way before We even had this opportunity in front of us to use the initiative petition process to end the abortion ban. They are talking about it in the context of abortion, but we know their real intent is to take away the power from Missourians.
2: Is there any preference from your coalition about whether this goes on the ballot on, in August or November? For reference, that's Governor Mike Parsons' decision, and you got to get enough signatures for that decision to even happen. But the reason why that question is important is it's very possible that lawmakers may put the initial petition changes in August as a way to try and make the threshold larger for uh, abortion legalization in November.
6: I can't pretend to know what is in Mike Parson's head or what he will do, so I, I won't try. I think right now we are focused on the 87 days we have left in order to get the signatures we need to get this on the ballot.
2: I'm going to ask both of you one final question. I'll start with uh, Mallory. What do you think is at stake over the next 87 days?
6: Everything is at stake for families, and anyone with the ability to be pregnant in Missouri. We have a fundamental opportunity to take back a freedom that was stolen from us and to end Missouri's abortion ban. It's going to take all of us coming together to do this, and the stakes could not be higher.
2: Lisa, what's at stake over the next 87 days?
6: I believe that
0: what's at stake is the right of all Missourians to choose for themselves, whether or when they will start a family and to get the health care that they want and need in their own community. That currently is not the case in Missouri. And we, through this process, have the ability to give Missourians that right back.
2: Mallory Schwartz is with Missourians for Constitutional Freedom and is the Executive Director of Abortion Action Missouri. And Lisa Williams is a volunteer petitioner for the campaign. Lisa, Mallory, thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thank you so much.
2: When we return, we'll talk with St. Louis on the Air host Elaine Cha about how Missourians could learn more about civics and their government. This is the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Welcome back to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. We've spent a good chunk of this show breaking down complex systems to allocate presidential delegates and to get a proposed constitutional amendment on Missouri's ballots. And these types of things can be so complicated that even people who may be well-versed about politics and government may be truly befuddled. But it's not just political junkies who need a refresher on the realities of civic life. St. Louis on the Air host Elaine Cha went into depth this week about how the way young people and minority communities learn about local, state, and federal governance. And the bottom line is it's severely lacking. Elaine is in studio to continue this vital conversation Elaine, welcome to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air.
5: Hello, Jason. <laughs>
2: My, have the, the tables have turned, haven't they? Have they have, indeed. <laughs> what drew you to foster conversations about civic life?
5: Well, part of it is that it's not something that I've heard a lot about on the the airwaves generally. There are podcasts, certainly, that are out there that come out of public media organizations that are looking at civics, but it didn't... It just did not feel like we were talking about it that much, um, and as someone who did not grow up in the states, you know, we did a reel together. We
2: did. It, um, it's gonna win. It's gonna win an Academy Award. It, it most
5: certainly will. Uh, but the part of of, of that is I'm joking around about being Canadian. But I did not grow up going to school K through eight in the united states so part of it is my own curiosity about the way that uh, teaching of government and civics, civics is done in schools
2: and i think that one of the things you really talked about yesterday was this tension between rote instruction where people learn about civics through facts and memorizing them and kind of immersive learning where they learn by you know, writing to congressmen, or going to a governmental facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, is one better than the other? It, it seems like they they have their ups and downs. Right.
5: Well, I don't know so much that the folks that I was talking with yesterday, they're, they're educators um, who also work with teachers. And I, I'm not sure that we can say that one is better than the other. I think that the one... Um, information, you know, facts, history, that that does not work as well if it is not put hand in hand with something that that students in particular, they may not be old enough to vote, but they're certainly old enough to be engaged in in civics. And so the two working together, that that just makes more sense. Um, Another point that was brought up is that The approach to civics is that it's not about indoctrination or about politics. And to the point, again, about young people writing to uh, a congressperson, it doesn't matter what the political affiliation is of that congressperson. They are still in a position where they need to listen to constituents And young people who cannot vote and like people who are part of um, immigrant populations who are not able to vote because they're not citizens, they're still part of the constituency.
2: So earlier this week, I put out a prompt on my Facebook page asking people how they learned about government and civics. And frankly, the response was overwhelming, Mm -hmm. nearly 121 responses. And I want to break it down in a couple of ways. Um, there were a number of people who talked about how they learned about civics and government through school, but I thought that the more interesting ones were people that learned by working on campaigns or interning at governmental institutions. For example, Taylor Hurth wrote, how she learned about civics by interning at the Capitol. I found out more about how it didn't work, how ego-driven it can be, how hard it is to get useful information through, and how inflexible people's minds are, and how imperfect our electeds can be. Mm-hmm. Kelly Schultz adds, my internship. School teaches you process, but you can't truly learn about people power and the strategy to gain power and influence people at every single step of the process until you're in the building. That seems to be an endorsement of more immersive learning about civics than the roteness. Mm-hmm. By the way, I love that word rote. But, <laughs> but what do you think about that?
5: Well, first of all, I think that the people that you were speaking with, it really does depend on on who the audience is, the people that you're engaging with, and being able to engage on that level of you know, internship at the Capitol and, and um, being able to Uh, to be in conversations with people who are deeply involved with the political process, that there's a little bit of of privilege that's attached to that. And so, um, you know, when it comes to how people do get uh, a better understanding, if you are younger, you're sort of, um, you're subject to whomever you are around. You have a little bit less agency but it, once you get to a point where you can sort of seek out opportunity, I mean, so much of it is being left on the the individual. And I think that does make sense. But at the same time, sort of brings up questions of, um, you know, do you need to be involved in that way in order to have um, a, a working understanding and knowledge that is attached to, you know, a person's feeling empowered um, and engaged in civic processes.
2: And in the last minute we have left, we also had people say they learned through watching the news, the Daily Show, Schoolhouse Rock. Steve Engelhart even said the Sopranos taught him about politics. <laughs> um, and I-, I learned about it by ingesting a lot of news media. Mm-hmm. How did you end up learning about civics and government? Uh,
5: very shortly, I learned through school, Schoolhouse Rock. Uh, that's at, in my adulthood. I also learned an AP U.S. history in high school, which was hard because I was a recent immigrant at the time. I didn't even know what the state capitals were. And then standard government class. So I think there is a, a lot to be said for what people can learn outside the class. And that's what I'm hoping that we can talk more about.
2: I am, My biggest disappointment is I got a four in AP government instead of a five. But, <laughs> you know, nobody's perfect. <laughs> Elaine, thank you so much for joining us today. And Elaine, of course, is the host of St. Louis on the Air. Yeah.
5: Well, thank you for having me today.
4: Today's episode
2: was produced by Jason Rosenbaum.
5: Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. This
4: podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron.
2: Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer.
4: St. Louis on the Air is a production of
3: St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here.
2: Support for Politically Speaking comes from the Sue and Lynn Schneider Charitable Fund. Read all of our coverage at stlpr.org. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Politically Speaking by searching the term Politically Speaking on Apple Podcasts.
3: St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the
2: University of Missouri-St. Louis.
1: If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart
3: speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.